good to be back today. Glad the tornado warning. I didn't, uh, watch didn't get anybody today. Adventure for January, which is awfully strange to have those this month. Uh, glad to see you this tonight. We're in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. My hope of the weekend was to encourage you to see prayer not as a burden, but an opportunity. We began to think of that last night and then work it out this morning, even with a sense of working out a, an opportunity to confess our sins. For Christians need to confess their sins even still. So Christ, in that moment of when we transfer our trust to him and he, he washes away our sin as far as the east is from the west, yet even so, there's this ongoing need we discussed this morning to confess our sins because if we're to hold those sins in our heart, to smother us spiritually. We saw David wasting away under the unconfessed sin in his heart. Confess our sins because there's mercy and there's assurance with that. What a blessing to hear those words of pardon. You've forgiven the iniquity of my sin. And we saw that confession of sin is an opportunity to, to grow spiritually in sanctification. That as we are confessing our sins, acknowledging to God, that then we're moved of heart to confess the desire to, for God to create in us a new spirit, a right spirit within him, that we might serve him and honor him in the way we live. And today we turn our focus to praying for others. Ephesians chapter 1 is Paul's great prayer for the Ephesians. He'll pray again in Ephesians 3, but we'll see his heart, his passion is to intercede on behalf of other people. And we'll see why he does that. And we'll see what he's praying in these prayers. So my hope tonight as we think about prayer this weekend is we'll begin to think about how our heart should be oriented, even in our prayers, towards the needs of other people. Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23 will be our passage tonight. The Bible is inspired and infallible word of God. It's our only rule of faith and practice. Let's hear God's holy word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless us the reading and preaching of this holy word. You see, Paul does not cease to pray for believers. It is the, the passion of his heart. It is the, the longing of his heart to be in prayer, concerned about the needs of other people. He's passionate about praying, he's passionate about people, and that leads him to open his mouth. It's as if he can't help it. He, he prays, and he prays for them. And I want you to see this, this passage in Ephesians, it's not the only time he does that. He'll do it to the Philippians as well. Philippians chapter 1, 9 to 11, he'll say, this is my prayer, that your, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. 
and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying for those in Philippi. He's praying for Philemon. Philemon chapter 1, verse 4 to 7. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He loves his people. He loves the churches. He loves individuals. We see the same thing in, in uh, the book of Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see your face. That we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He had a burn for people. He had a passion for other people. He was concerned about them, and that would lead them to pray. If you remember 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he talks about this, this longing to be with him, this intense desire to be able to be with them. And so we, we very quickly understand as God is working these relationships, there is this longing which brothers should have for brothers, sisters for sisters, this desire to be with them. And if I can't be with them, encourage them, I'm going to pray that God would encourage them by, by his Spirit. And so 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, he's, he's working out this longing, this, this desire. He's been forced to leave Thessalonica, and he, he longs to be back. And so, so what does he do? But he sends Timothy. I'm going to be connected with one another. I'll send Timothy, and he'll go to encourage you and find a word on how you are doing and strengthen and encourage them in the faith. And so that's what we see in the Christian life. It's about, it's about investing in one another being involved in one another's lives so that I can encourage you and you can encourage me and I can pray for you and you can pray for me. So he's working that out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and Timothy comes back and reports the good news. They're, they're growing spiritually. I mean, here's Paul uh, with all his struggles, with all the things he could be worried about. What does his heart want to know? It's how they're doing. And so the news that they are growing just overshadows all the struggles he's going through. It's, it's what matters most to him. How is brothers and sisters in Christ doing? How are the churches doing? That's his desire that we find here. And so when he hears this news from, from Timothy, they're doing well. They're, they're growing in their faith. What's the next logical step? But he wants to pray. He wants to praise God and begin to plead even more for them. For what thanksgivings can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's Paul's heart. He's passionate about people. He's passionate about praying for people. He's passionate about seeing God at work in the lives of other people, supplying their needs, building them up, that God might use them uh, strengthen their faith, strengthen their love for one another so that they might be used of God to be involved in the lives of other people. And that's the way it works. There's this passion which Paul has. Paul will remind the, the uh, Colossians that Epaphras, their, their fellow friend, has a similar passion for people and longing for them. 
Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, he sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That's his heart. He's praying for them. He's wrestling in prayer for them. And so why would he do that? The, the last thing I want to do tonight is say, look at Paul and look at Epaphras. They prayed really hard and you ought to pray really hard as well. And just have you walk out of here without some rationale. Why would they do that? It would motivate my heart to stop this night and not just be concerned with my own needs, but say, I want to pray for my brother and pray for my sister. What do I pray? What's the reason for that? This brings us to Ephesians 1 verse 15. Paul is gracious. He, he explains this to us in clear detail. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. There's the rationale. There's the drive behind it. There's the reason. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Hope you understand that no man, I think, can truly be a Christian if he, if he doesn't rejoice that others know the Lord Jesus. It is the experience of the saints, is it not? That we have a, a great blessing of knowing our God and we understand that it works itself out that we would long for other people to have that same joy, to know that same blessing. And so here we see it in, in Paul's heart. It's working itself out. It gladdens the hearts of believers to know that other people are in a similar position Experiencing the same Christ in the same way that our sins are forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And now, now I belong to God. Now they belong to God. And so we see that working in Paul's heart. He's rejoicing over their conversion. And that leads to praying for them. We're in the same situation. We're in the same family. And so now we pray for one another. You remember in Acts chapter 19 that Paul got to be in Ephesus. And he preached there for a season, but he, he was driven out. He had, to, he had to leave there. And so we were, we were reminded that in Acts 19, he preaches. They place their faith in Christ. Fast forward to Ephesians. He says, ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I give thanks to God. The, the idea is not that they didn't believe the first time. It's just this wonderful news that Paul hears. They believed when I was there, and they still believe. It wasn't just a passing emotion. It wasn't just a, a, a saying from their lips, but not from their hearts. It, was, it stuck, as it were. It was genuine. And so he's rejoicing over that because these, these ones that I counted as brothers and sisters in Christ, they are. There's abiding fruit. And so he, he's rejoicing. They are still exercising their faith. And so we find these reports. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Love towards all the saints. What is so significant about that? Well, they, would, they would move Paul to pray. These are evidences of true conversion. No man is a Christian unless he places his faith in the Lord Jesus. And if he places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel begins to work itself out, what, does, what naturally or what supernaturally happens? But we, we love one another. We love one another. It's just the way the gospel works. We, we love our God for what he's done for us. And then we... We work that out to love one another. 
And so here's Paul saying, I see they place their faith in Christ and they're bearing fruit and therefore I rejoice in their lives. Think for just a moment about why you usually pray for the certain ones that you tend to be praying for. Why do you pray for them? Who comes to mind? Well, it tends to be the ones that are we share something in common with. Same family, same background, same affinities. And so we we're tend to be just kind of naturally drawn toward people that are like us, and we pray for people that are like us. What motivated Paul to pray for people? It was that God was at work in their lives. It wasn't necessarily an affinity. They weren't from the same place, but, but that God was at work in their lives. And he's heard this wonderful report, and as he's hearing this report of what God is doing, he's, he's overwhelmed in thankfulness to God to say, I long to pray for them. And so I just encourage you tonight as we think about praying for one another, not just the, the tendency to pray for people just like us, begin to say, but rather to say, as God is at work in their lives, I will rejoice over them. I may have no other similarity to this person in the world, save Christ, and yet that's what motivates me to pray for them. That Christ is alive in their hearts. And they've embraced that, and God is changing them. And therefore, as I hear this report, I, I long to pray for them. The gospel has brought us together, and therefore, I want to pray. I want to pray for them. And so we see that in Paul's life, passion to pray for them was rooted in the work of God on all who had been saved, and therefore he prays for each and every one of them. And so why does Paul pray? God's at work. God's at work in their lives, and therefore that moves them to pray. I pray it would, the same would happen in our own lives as well. What does Paul pray? You begin to see that as well in verse 17. He begins to work this out more carefully, or more specifically rather. Verse 17, that, here's the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. What's Paul praying for? First we see he's praying for for them to to have a spirit such that their hearts are enlightened. It gets confusing a bit here. You'll notice in verse 17 as we're working through this that, that God would do this work, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now we know if you look up in verse 13 that God has already sealed us with the Holy Spirit. So the question becomes in verse 17, is that supposed to be spirit with a little s, uh, as the ESV does, or a capital S, as some other translations do, and you can work through that carefully uh, as you're, uh, in addition to what we do tonight. But simply saying, in verse 13 we know we have the Spirit. We're not a Christian unless we have the Spirit. And so it's not as if it's verse 17, he's given us the Spirit uh, brand new, or giving us more of the Spirit, like in verse 13 he gave you like 25% of it, and now you get just a little bit more of it. But it may be something more than that. The, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to give us all truth, help us to grasp truth. So here what, what Paul has in mind, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may work in our hearts in such a way 
that we would have a greater understanding, greater wisdom and revelation of God. It is the Holy Spirit that's going to do that work. And yet perhaps it's our spirit of wisdom and knowledge of him. In other words, he's praying that I might understand Christ better. That I might have a spirit of wisdom about God who's at work. A spirit of revelation, meaning not new revelation, but understanding the revelation that God has given to us. Have those things. I might be enlightened in that way. In verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's what Paul's praying for other people. That their heart might be enlightened. There's certain truths that they might know better and better. That the more God builds them up in faith, He saved them, yes. Their souls are right and secure for all eternity because they're sealed with the Spirit, verse 13. But Paul wants more for them than that. That the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. That they might know in a greater and greater depth all the days of their life certain truths. And so we begin to think about the way we pray for one another. And I'll close with this, but let me make allusion to this already. What do we usually pray for people? We usually pray for their circumstances. We usually pray for outward concerns. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's not where Paul is going first. And there's something more. Paul's desire is that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened, that they might know certain truths. I'm going to get to those in just a moment. The, The three truths that Paul wants them to understand. But if you're thinking big picture, he wants them to grasp in a greater and greater way what God's word says. He wants them to understand the truth about God. He wants them to understand what God has done, is doing, and will do. So that would be a grasp about that so they would not only understand that truth better, but appreciate that truth more. It would mean more to their hearts. He's not just running, as he will at times, to pray for their outward concerns. But he's praying about their spiritual well-being, their spiritual maturity. And so he's pushing us in that way, that they would desire God and his truth and his grace and his blessings beyond anything else. They would know three things in particular. They would know the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. And so that's how he's praying. That we're going to work through each of those petitions. They might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Their hearts might be enlightened. So they're grasping certain truths better. Namely, what is the hope of their calling? You see that at the beginning of verse 18. So you might know what is the hope of his calling. Here he's desiring the Holy Spirit would give us a deeper and deeper, in a, in a real sense, of these great realities. That God has called us to himself. That eternity, from all eternity past, he looked down and said, I will call that man in a saving way to myself. That he has, in the, in the, in the, not in the fullness of time, sent his son, but at the right particular time, he's called us to himself. So that we have been effectually called unto God. So therefore I'm responding to that call because of the work of the Spirit. And to know the hope of that calling. The certainty of that calling. The blessings that come with that calling of now being God's. 
That's Paul's longing of his heart of all the things he could pray for. He first starts here. I want you to know the hope that is there. We live in a world filled with hopelessness. A world filled with that. There is despair. And the more we are honest, the more we, we work to be around broken people, and just to be, to be willing to, to, to go out where there's people that are hurt and needy, you will see the, the hopelessness can be, can be overwhelming. I serve, and the Lord's goodness, I serve as the chaplain of the Fuller Police Department, which means about four or five, maybe six times a year, I'll go out and do a death notification with a police officer. I'm the guy knocking at the door at two in the morning saying, I'm so sorry to tell you this news. Or three or four times a year, going to the home of a person who's committed suicide. And my job is to sit with family while the, the police investigate that. And so I begin to, to inquire gently about what sources of help that that person might have. Is there, is there someone I can call for you? Is, is, there, is there a pastor? Is there a, a minister that you, that you might know? How can I help you? And what is so amazing to me is that we live in a culture, even the South, where there's vast majority of people, they have, they have no connection with the church. They have no connection with God other than a vague religion of that was my, my mom and dad used to say certain things. The hopelessness is overwhelming. I mean, I can't imagine death in my own family, knowing the Lord, but to have no sense of that. The tragedy of the whole thing would be overwhelming. I'll give you another example. Maybe you remember back in December... The, uh, the lottery hit something like $500 million. And so you watch people that night, they're, they're advertising, even on uh, the nightly news is now about the lottery and the possibility of winning it. You understand, of course, what drives all of that. We live in this day of hopelessness. And so maybe the hope is I could win the lottery and then my life would be so much better. And so it's crazy. You begin to, to listen even to the news people who are talking about how sales are just going through the roof. Even on Nightline News, they'll begin to talk about how impossible it is that you're going to win this thing. And they'll give statistics like it's 50 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to win the lottery. I don't even know anybody who's been struck by lightning. I have a 50 times more likely to, win the, to, to get struck by lightning than win the lottery. And yet, millions of people go out. You're 50 times more likely to be crushed by a vending machine than you are to win the lottery. You have a greater chance of being president of the United States, or my favorite, you have a 25% greater chance of dating a supermodel than you do of winning the lottery. And yet, what do people do? The people who can't afford it the most spend the most in the hope that they'll be able to have their lives changed by that moment. If you look around at our cities, if you look around at our culture, there is hopelessness. And what does Paul say to us as believers? That we should never find ourselves in such a circumstance as hopelessness. Because God, from all eternity past, called you to himself. And in perfect timing, he called you savingly to a knowledge of himself. And for all eternity, you have the hope of Christ. You might not have anything else. You might lose your health, and you might lose your money, you might lose your home. But even so, I've got the hope of Christ. And that's enough. And so Paul is first concerned about that, that we would understand that. Can we lose sight of that? Absolutely. Can we be overwhelmed looking at our circumstances rather than our God? 
We can't. That's why Paul's praying it. And that's why I believe he puts it in his word so that we would be commended to pray for that very thing. That we would know the hope of our calling. Be a beautiful prayer to pray for your own family, to pray for others. They would never lose sight of that. What is the hope of our calling? God has called us from darkness to light. He has called us from from enslavement to freedom. God has put us under His divine protection for now and all eternity. Spurgeon, I love how he, he puts it in speaking about hope. He says, in this wonderful honesty about the Christian life, that the Christian expects stormy voyages. But because Christ is at the helm, he hopes to come to the fair haven at last. He expects to be tempted, but he hopes to be upheld. He expects to be slandered, but he hopes to be cleared. He expects to be tried, but he hopes to triumph. His hope is that through all life, whether that is short or long, and it does not matter to him how how many years it is, that underneath him, the believer, will be the everlasting arms. He hopes that the Lord will be his shepherd, and he shall not want. He hopes that goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. Therefore, he's not afraid to die. For then he expects to come to actual possession of his best possessions. Oh, that we would pray that for one another. To know the hope of our calling. And yet Paul goes beyond that. To pray not only what is the hope of our calling, but to know the, the riches of our inheritance. Verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now again, I tell you there's a debate here. What is Paul referring to? Is it God's inheritance being his people or our inheritance that God gives to us? Listen to verse 18 again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Is it God inheriting the saints? Or is it our inheritance that God has for his saints when he gets to heaven? Either way, you begin to work it out a bit. There's something glorious awaiting us. And that God is finding great joy in bringing a people to himself. And we get to enjoy him. And he's enjoying us. Or speaking more about us, uh, the, the blessing that is ours. It all wraps together in this way. That there is waiting for us on that great day when God calls into his, us to himself. There is waiting glory and joy and blessing beyond measure. That God is not only, uh, not Jesus is not only preparing heaven for us, preparing us for heaven, and that's all waiting ahead of us. And so think for a moment, why would, why would Paul pray for that right now? Why would he pray that they would know the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints? Because most days of our lives, we're going to let very minor, very temporal things overwhelm us. We're going to be frustrated by things that will, have, will absolutely not matter a bit tomorrow. And yet today I'm mad about it. And I'm frustrated because I'm sitting in traffic or it's raining when I'm trying to get to my car or whatever. There, there can be these matters where I'm overwhelmed with frustration. And Paul says my prayer is that I would, I would lift my eyes a bit and look at them long into the future and say there's coming a glorious day and I'll be with my God and I'll be like him for I'll see him face to face and I'll know the, the joy of my Savior in a way I've never experienced here. How different my day would be today if I looked upward and, 
in, in the future rather than being overwhelmed by things now. Paul says, I'll pray that for you. We should pray that for one another. And finally, he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. That's in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? If the first prayer is about hopelessness, maybe the second prayer is about short-sightedness. Just looking at here and now rather than being reminded of my inheritance that is to come. So one is hopelessness, one is short-sightedness. This one is about a sense of powerlessness. There's a powerlessness that we that we think that we have, even though we have God, it lies and it work in our own soul. And Paul says, I want them to know that power. I want them to know the, the power that God has to be at work in us now. We look at ourselves and say, we'll never change. We look at others and say, well, don't, they'll never change. We look at our circumstances and say, there's no hope for them changing. Except in all of that, we've forgotten God's immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us. We're not looking at that. And so Paul says, here's my prayer. That they would see it. That they would know it. That they would believe it. That they would be able to apply it to their hearts and to their family and their friends and their circumstances. To be reminded that though, yes, their hands are weak. Yes, we have limited wisdom and understanding and, and ability to persuade others and make a situation different. Yet nonetheless, our God is mighty. Our God is sovereign. There's an immeasurable greatness about his power. Again, Spurgeon puts it this way. The very same power which raised Christ from the dead is waiting to raise the drunk from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, and to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. God has power among the sons of men, and this power he puts forth in making them to be a people that shall show forth his praise. Oh, that you knew what the exceeding greatness of that power is towards us who believe. Because then you would fling away despair. There remains nothing for you in this case but to submit to that divine power. God will work in you. Be willing, he says, to be worked upon. Be willing to be worked upon. And we can say to pray that others would be inclined as well. Think of it this way as we we close this morning. Think about praying for others. How do we usually pray? Lord, they're sick and they face this difficulty. Would you, would you make their body well? Lord, they're having a financial crisis. Would you, would you provide for their financial needs? God, they, she needs a job. She needs a job. Would you provide for that job situation? God, there's tension in their family. Would you work out that marriage situation? Or would you work out that parenting situation? Would you, would you work along those lines? Those are good and right prayers. And God prays, uh, tells us, as we'll study even tomorrow night, we can pray for things like daily bread. So certainly we can pray about the, the finances to, to buy that bread. Those are not wrong prayers. But just think for a moment as Paul is praying. He's not praying circumstantial prayers, though he could have. He's praying for their spiritual maturity. I remember years ago there was a, a, a man that I... I had a chance to befriend, and uh, in this group, I, I met this group of guys, and 
they would say he was the most hardened guy in the group. And he, and he, he laughed at me and made a fun of me the first time we ever met him. And then God did this wonderful thing. He gave us an affinity for one another. And we spent time around each other. And I can remember the, the first time he ever asked me to pray for him. It was pray that he'd be able to provide for uh, his son was uh, just starting to go to a private school and they couldn't afford it. Would you, would you pray for that? And I remember thinking to myself, if I prayed for that, God made his grace provide for that need. But then another financial need is going to come down the way some other time. I want to pray for that, but I want to pray for, I want to pray for him. That he would not only see that, that financial need provided, but he would see the God who provided that financial need. And he would understand something of the greatness of that God. And that God could prove himself wonderfully faithful, even if he didn't provide for that specific financial need. You see that if we, we pray for circumstances, then maybe we're seeing God is only faithful, only good, if he meets those things which we think are bad. And so what I want to do is also pull back and pray that the heart, uh, the, uh, the eyes of this man's heart might be enlightened. That he might know God. He might know the hope of God's calling. What is the riches of his inheritance? What is the, the power of this God? So it's not just one day and one occasion, but all his life, everything now looks differently. And so that's what Paul is doing, I, pray, I, I believe, here. And what we should do as well. To say, I will pray for those very practical needs. But let me pray for you as well. Let me pray for my brother and sister in Christ. The one whom God has done a wonderful work to bring them to faith. So that now, even as this wonderful fruit of them loving one another, now let me, let me invest in them, in their spiritual well-being. Not just their, their needs being met outwardly, but now that they would be in a different place. Let's pray for one another in that way. I pray that God would spur your heart in that way. How can I pray for them, not just their circumstances? That God might be pleased to respond to such prayers as that we we as a body are all at a different spot. No matter what God does outwardly, we'll praise Him. And we'll have hope. And we'll know, no longer be short-sighted. And we'll understand the power that is our God. And praise Him for what He's done now and for all eternity. Let's pray together. Be gracious, O Lord, I pray, to give us eyes to see the way in which we should pray for one another. Burden our hearts so, yes, we... We tend to think of our brothers and sisters in times of crisis, but, oh, Lord, may that every day we pray for one another that even as crisis come, our brothers and sisters might be ready. They might have the, uh, the armor of God about them. And that because of the power of God at work in them, they're ready for all of it. Build us up even through praying for one another. We ask, oh, Lord, in Christ's name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.